Hi and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name's Neil and in this episode I'm going to talk about mountains, more specifically four mountains in Greece and how they were associated with both myth and real events. In my last podcast I put up some episode notes and I'll be doing this for this episode. You can find these on my website ancientblogger.com where I've got vlogs, articles and all sorts of other content. I'll post pictures, links to some of the papers I cite and other websites in there. I'll also throw in this podcast, as well as a couple of other podcasts which relate to topics I mention. I'll start then with a big hitter in terms of mountains in Greece, Parnassus. This mount is located in central Greece, and the only one in this podcast which I have had the pleasure of visiting. Just to give you some stats, it's around 2,500 metres high, which is about 8,000 feet, and boasts one of the most famous sites of antiquity, Delphi. It was here that many a somewhat vague answer was given, and often completely misinterpreted. The easy climb would be just to talk about Delphi, and I will cover some of it later, but in the tradition of the Ancient History Hound podcast, I'm going to take the less trodden path. To start with, the question of how the mountain was named. We're obliged to Pausanias, who wrote in the 2nd century CE or AD, for a simple story whereby Parnassus was a hero born to a nymph called Cleodora and established the oldest city on the mountain, which then took his name. What is of particular interest is the following association the mountain had with both wolves and floods. These aren't random associations, they are linked. According to one myth, a great flood occurred which caused panic to the citizens in one city, perhaps Parnassus itself. The citizens were led up to the peaks of Parnassus by howling wolves, and they then founded a city there called Lycoria. Another myth has Parnassus as the resting stop for the chest containing Deucalion, which bobbed around following a great flood sent to destroy man. One cause for this flood myth will be covered in another mountain I feature, but it does involve wolves, well, sort of, and you'll get to hear exactly how later on. And in terms of wolves, there are two more stories worth mentioning. Now, I don't know if anyone listening to this will remember Lassie, the ever-helpful dog, or the Australian version, which was Skippy the kangaroo. In either case, these were crime-solving animals, and a wolf helped solve the case of the gold stolen from Delphi. Again, it's Pausanias who wrote how a wolf kept howling near the sanctuary at Delphi, following the disappearance of gold from the treasury there. After a while, the locals decided to follow the wolf, who led them to a body of a thief and the stash of gold. I'm unsure if they overlooked the case of the partially eaten thief and the mysterious bite marks, but all the parties seemed happy with the outcome. So much so, in fact, that the wolf even got its own statue at the sanctuary, and if you saw on Twitter that I shared a shot of the statue which appears in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Nice touch there. But it's not just Pausanias leaving these wolfish tidbits out for us. Homer's Odyssey includes the story of how Odysseus got the scar on his thigh, which is how the nurse later recognised him. Well, guess what creature gave him that scar? No, 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 it was a boar. But he got it whilst hunting on Parnassus with his grandfather Autolycus. Now it's his grandfather who carries the link with wolves, as his name translates as something in the lines of Very Wolf. Autolycus was a curious character, 
who had associations with Hermes as a thief or trickster. So that's where Odysseus got it from. What links the wolf further with Parnassus was Apollo, whose worship could embrace the wolf, and the god even had a wolf epithet. Perhaps I should also add that the crime-solving wolf I mentioned earlier was in fact sent by Apollo. Point is that Apollo and wolves wasn't an unusual combination to have in place. Mentioning Apollo brings me to the subject of Delphi, and thus the oracle there. I could do a whole episode on the Delphic oracle, and perhaps I will someday, but until then, here's a brief overview of how Parnassus became home to the oracle. I should start with a disclaimer that there are a number of contradictory tales involving Apollo and Delphi. Some myths have him arriving at Parnassus after searching high and low for a suitable venue. In others, he's brought as a child. One of the more bizarre accounts has him arriving and then changing into a dolphin to lure a ship from Crete into a nearby port. When the sailors landed, he revealed himself as a god and instructed the sailors to serve him there. The Greek word for dolphin is Delphis, so perhaps this was a way of explaining the name of the sanctuary. But even here we have a problem, as the name of the sanctuary was originally Pitho. The Homeric hymn to Apollo recounted Apollo's victory over a dragon located there. After it was killed, it rotted in the sun, and the Greek verb to rot is Pitho. But sometimes the dragon isn't mentioned at all. In Aeschylus' play The Eumenides, the oracle is given as a gift. But in Euripides' Iphigenia at Taurus, the baby Apollo claims the site by killing the dragon there. Yeah, he's specifically referenced as a baby. Now a baby killing a dragon. What a statue that would have been. Are we surprised that there were so many competing myths about Apollo and Delphi? Probably not. In fact, if there was one surviving myth which explicitly stated any connection, my reaction would be, well, what about all the other stories which haven't survived? In whichever way it came to be, the oracle found fame with it being consulted by a number of famous people, and they weren't just Greeks. There were stories of Croesus, of Lydia visiting, and even of the Roman Brutus, the one who kicked the kings out of Rome. Delphi became a mini polis on the mountain, but this didn't mean that it was all about Apollo. Further up the mountain was the Corician Cave. It acted as a place where people from the sanctuary hid from the Persians when they invaded, but also as a site of divination. Excavations here have resulted in a large number of finds, including 20,000 or so knuckle bones which were used for divination. The cave itself measures about 60 metres long, 26 metres wide and 12 metres high. So it's a site where substantial activity could have taken place, and from the finds, this seems to have been the case. The cave takes its name from Corissia, a nymph who had a son by Apollo, and so along with the prophetic knuckle bones, we can start to detect a theme of divination associated with this cave. Professor Jennifer Larson has linked the Corissian cave to the mention of the three sisters who taught divination and are mentioned in Homer's hymn to Hermes. To help support this further, there's the comments made by the character of the Pythia, the priestess of Delphi in Aeschylus' play The Eumenides, where the nymphs are mentioned in a short history of the oracle that she makes. As you can hear, the stories of the oracle's founding and how Apollo came to reside varies depending on what source you're reading. No one seems to have the definitive story, and it's worth thinking of this not as unusual, but as the norm. We live in an age where continuity is king, and we even have the whole concept of canon with our modern stories. If a character has the wrong name, backstory, outfit, or such made in a film, 
particularly if it's a much-loved reboot or brand, the forums of the world boil over with fury. Not so much with the ancient Greeks. There was often more than one version of anything when it came to the stories they told about their gods and myths in general, and they seemed quite happy with this. One outcome of this is that place could have more than one association with a deity, and a good example of this is the link Pan had with the Carician Cave. It's even known as Pan's Cave, and it was this deity who involved himself with an invading force of Gauls in the 3rd century BCE, and it was led by a chap called Brennus. Brennus, in fairness, fancied sacking Delphi, and why wouldn't you? It was a prime spot for any invading force who wanted to cash in. However, whilst they camped nearby, the mountains sent crashing rocks down upon them. The following day, they fought a Greek force to a stalemate. That night, as Pausanias notes, they were gripped by madness sent by Pan, and ended up killing each other. It's a brief tale and borrows from a familiar trope of a deity, in this case Pan, securing his obligation and ties to it a particular place, in this case the Carician Cave, and by default Delphi. Yet a more exaggerating version of this was told in the case of the invading Persian army in the early 5th century BCE. This time we have Herodotus recounting how the residents of Delphi panicked at the oncoming Persians, in particular the fate of the treasure and objects they had in the sanctuary. After asking the oracle what they should do, they sent their women and children to Achaea, whilst the men either hid in the peaks of Parnassus or in the Carician cave. As for all that loot, the answer from the oracle was, don't worry, we'll look after it. As the Persians arrived, things got a little bit spooky, and then downright violent. Upon encroaching on the temple to Athena Pranea, thunderbolts from the sky fell down upon them. Along with this came boulders. Indeed, Herodotus wrote that two peaks of Parnassus broke off and came rushing down upon them. In all of this, the residents of Delphi, presumably armed and nearby, rushed in and defeated the force. What may have been an ambush of perhaps a Persian scouting force became the mountain and the god protecting the sanctuary and thus the Greeks. And just to add a cherry on top, there's the obligatory reference to localish worshipped heroes being seen fighting on behalf of the Greeks. It's your standard propaganda of antiquity, but I'm not trying to be facetious here. The fact that this story could have traction in antiquity meant it needed to have a cultural relevance to it. There was no Greek word for religion, and this is a good example of why. The landscape was saturated what we might see as religious worship, but for the Greeks it was probably indistinguishable. Look over there, there's a cave. But it's not just a cave, it's a cave which had a deity attached somewhere. Perhaps Poseidon trimmed his beard there, or a local hero used to sleep in it. And this attitude extended across Mount Parnassus. There was a fair bit of land here which a god could be involved with, and this was the case because another god roamed large here, albeit higher up and at the peaks. In Euripides' play The Bacchae, the prophet Tiresias notes how Dionysus will be leaping over the peaks of Parnassus with his thyrsus. That's his ivy-covered staff, in case you didn't know. Professor Jeremy McKinnery wrote a very interesting piece, which I'll link to in the episode notes, and argues how there was almost a division on Parnassus. You have the lower part, which Apollo has his sanctuary at Delphi, and the upper part, which was the preserve of Dionysus. The transitional point was the Carician cave. There were even worshippers of Dionysus based in Delphi, and they were called the Theades. Their worship was on the peaks of Parnassus, but also in Delphi itself, and this involved secret ceremonies as well as agricultural ones. One such festival 
was called the Charilla. This had roots in, well, a quite horrible incident involving famine, a child, suicide and a sandal. The story goes that the Delphians were suffering famine and in response the king at the time handed out grain but he only did so to the leading men and their families. He was approached by a young orphan girl who asked for her share. The king's response was to hit her in the face with his sandal. The girl then ran away and hung herself. I don't expect a Disney version anytime soon, though a wisecracking sandal does seem quite a fun idea. The Pythia, the chief priestess at Delphi, told the king he needed to atone for his act, but there was no way of finding the girl's family to apologise, as I said, she was an orphan. So instead, a ritual was introduced, whereby the king would give out grain to everyone whilst carrying a doll representing the girl. After everyone had received their portion, the doll was hit with a sandal and passed to the leader of the Theades, who threw it into a ravine. That Dionysus was associated with Parnassus might be unexpected, and it wasn't something I'd expected to find either. The association with Dionysus and the next mountain wasn't, for me, any sort of a surprise. And the next mountain is a range, as much as it is a single mountain. The range runs roughly east-west for some 10 miles, that's 16 kilometres, and is the border between the Greek state of Attica to the south and Boeotia to the north. In case you haven't guessed it, I'm talking about Scytheron. The highest peak on the range is 1,409 metres, 4,623 feet, and even today it's covered with lush firs and pine forests. The latter is a bit of a clue to the link it has with a famous Greek tragedy, and I'll get to that later, but it was also a backdrop to a famous battle where the Greeks took on the Persians, again, I'll get to that as well. If you're a student of Greek tragedy, or just a fan of ancient history, you'll probably have a couple of ideas about where I'm going to go bouncing around in your head. But I'll wager there are some associations and stories you won't have heard. The first relates to how Scytheron got its name. Unsurprisingly, it was named after a mythical king who lived in the area, but not just any king. Scytheron was the sort of king who was incredibly wise, a, I suppose a Dr. Phil of the time. He was so wise that Zeus went to him for advice over his marriage to Hera. Even the newest of Greek myth will quickly learn that Zeus just wasn't marriage material. I could add that the whole marrying your sister thing is a bad place to start from, but, well, that's Olympians for you. According to Pausanias, Zeus travelled to Scytheron to ask the king for his help with Hera. Exactly what he'd done isn't clear, but it must have been really bad, and given Zeus's track record, well, actually it had to be incredibly bad, Scytheron came up with a ruse, which is ingenious, but also baffling. He suggested that Zeus made an image of a woman out of wood, then cover it in wedding attire and put it on a wagon. The next step was to announce that he was getting married, and this would drive Hera into a jealous rage. And it worked. She arrived on the spot and tore the dress from the image. When she realised it was just that, a wooden image, she was hugely relieved and thus reconciled with Zeus. There we go then. The next time you're in trouble with your significant other, just arrange to be caught in bed with a mannequin or something similar, and bingo, you're back in the good books. Alternatively, don't marry your sister and just talk a bit more. As much fun as it is, Pausanias' tale reinforces the concept Greeks had of localised law and mythology, something I talked about earlier. And in that fashion, you'd be unsurprised to know that there was another myth about how Scytheron got its name. This comes from a fragment of a poem from a female poet called Corinna. 
Exactly when she wrote is debated. Some date her to the 6th century BCE and others to the later 4th century BCE. In either case, her account is earlier than the one given by Pausanias. The fragment tells of a singing competition between Mount Cithron and Mount Helicon. After each sings a story to the gods, they vote by putting a pebble into the relevant urn and the god Hermes proclaims the winner, which was Cithron. Helicon took this very, very badly and went to the extent of throwing a large rock down which smashed into a thousand pieces. A bit more detail about it all is given in an account by Hermesian Axe, who is thought to have dated to the Hellenistic period. In his tale, Helicon and Cithron are two brothers with vastly different characters. Helicon was mild and Cithron greedy and impatient. This set of values clashed when it came to dealing with an inheritance. Cithron killed his father and then threw his brother off a cliff, but fell along with him in the process. The gods then transformed the pair into the respective mountains. Cithron was very much the bad boy of the mountains, if there was such a thing. He was the mountain your parents would be aghast if you brought home. It had a bad reputation. It was the place where Oedipus was abandoned as an infant, and where Actaeon was torn to shreds by his hounds after being turned into a stag. His great crime? He accidentally stumbled upon Artemis while she bathed. Now something similar happened on Helicon, though with a different outcome. There are a number of myths about how Tiresias gained his skills to see into the future, and one is that he stumbled upon Athena bathing on Helicon. His punishment was to be blinded, but to be given the skill of prophecy. Not nice, but much nicer than being eaten by dogs. The point being is that Cithron just seemed to be the place where the worst outcome was often the case. And in a seamless segue, the figure of Tiresias and being torn apart leads me to a play which has Cithron very much as a key part of it. I'm talking about Euripides' play, The Bacchae. But before I get to this, here's a word from Dr. David Miano. He's got a great YouTube channel, and here he is to talk about it. Have you ever heard someone say, rather dismissively, ah, that's ancient history? If you're like me, your response would be, tell me more. Hi, this is David Miano. If you're an ancient history lover, I invite you to come and take a gander at the World of Antiquity YouTube channel which delves into exciting ancient stories and materials from Pacific to Atlantic. In our Antiquities Travel Guide, for example, we provide you with insider tips and historical context for ancient sites around the globe, which may serve you for your journeys, or simply broaden your horizons during leisurely evenings at home when you wish to learn what's out there. You may also appreciate our Myths of Ancient History series, which tackles pseudoscientific claims about the ancient past that you see so often on the internet today. We take them one by one and show you how these ideas are not supported by the evidence. You can find the channel at youtube.com slash worldofantiquity. That's youtube.com slash worldofantiquity. Come on over and join us. Thanks for that. It's great to share content about the subject we all love, and I know from personal experience how tough it is to make a good YouTube channel or YouTube content. One day, I'll get there. Getting back to Euripides' play The Bacchae, if you haven't read it, don't worry, I'll cover what happens very briefly, and given that it's around two and a half thousand years old, I don't think I need a spoiler alert here. The location is Thebes, and a king who won't accept the worship of Dionysus. His name is Pentheus, which translates roughly as sorrow, so straight off the bat, you know that things may not end well for him. Pentheus isn't overly sold on the credentials of this new fangled chap running around proclaiming to be a god. 
Dionysus has caused the women of Thebes to journey to Scytheron, where they perform dances and worship him there. Dionysus takes mortal form and appears in the city and is captured, but it's only his perception. In reality, Dionysus has Pentheus hallucinate and thinking that he's actually caught Dionysus, when in fact he hasn't. Eventually, Pentheus agrees to journey with Dionysus to the slopes of Scytheron, where he can see exactly what's going on. Pentheus climbs a pine tree to watch the female followers, who then spot him and shake him from the tree. He then suffers what's called sparagmos, which is a great word, but not a nice one. It's a type of Dionysian sacrifice, in which the victim is torn to bits. Just to really add salt, the person who does this is his mother, Agave, who thinks she's killed a lion cub. In a macabre parade, she brings the remains back to Thebes to show her father, Cadmus, who is also Pentheus' grandfather. Cadmus is horrified as he sees the corpse of his grandson being paraded around and its head held by Agave. The truth of the situation soon reveals itself as the spell over Agave breaks and she sees what she's holding in her hands is her son's head. As a bit of trivia, Plutarch wrote that following the defeat of the Roman general Crassus at Carrhae in 53 BCE, the head of the general was brought to the court of the Parthian king. At that time, the Bacchae was being performed and the head of Crassus was used as a prop. Now that's truly improv and really committing to the part. Scytherin is integral to the play in a number of ways and acts to a counter to what we might consider the normal set of Greek values. The play is opened by Dionysus, who gives a speech outlining why he's there and what he's all about. The mountain is mentioned four times and in different contexts. It's the place where he sent the women of the Thebes in violent delusion. One of the themes in the Bacchae is the reversal of roles. And to start with, the women are, shock horror, running rampant. Dionysus also presents it as a place which is the polar opposite of the civilised city or polis, a place where women know their place. But he references the roofless rocks and green firs. And where you have houses in the city or polis, you have the opposite on the mountain. The architecture of the polis, which is a physical embodiment of it, is contrasted with this natural type of existence on the mountain. The women there run around in abandon and they don't need houses or even roofs. Then there's a threat. Dionysus says if the Thebans try and move his followers off the mountain, he'll use his followers as an army. And this cuts to the heart of it. Here's a prime manifestation of the power of men, that is, to have a city and an army. On the mountain, the army isn't of male hoplites, but of women armed with nothing more than frenzied worship. The fourth and final reference is made to the followers dancing peacefully, which kind of de-escalates what's happening there, and reframes his worship as involving dance, something which was a cultured activity. Big, weighty tomes have been written about the play, and there's something new about it every time you read it. However, Scytheron is a place where the action happens, and it does so off-stage. There's no attempt to try and recreate the outside and wild world of the mountain. One aspect of Greek drama was that all the gruesome stuff happens far away from the stage and is then reported usually by messenger. One possible root for the word obscene is that it comes from the ancient Greek obscene, meaning something like offstage, because if it happened offstage in a Greek tragedy, it was always going to be gruesome. Time, I think, to move from the abstract to the real, and what better of instance of reality than a battle which determined the outcome of the Persian invasion of Greece in 479 BCE. Most folk have heard of Thermopylae and even the great naval battle of Salamis. 
But Plataea stands as equally important. A sizeable Persian land army still had to be dealt with, and they weren't going anywhere soon. Mardonius, the Persian general, had been left with a large army and clear instructions to defeat the Greeks once and for all. Against this, a Greek force is arranged with contingents from the city-states, for example, Sparta and Athens. Mardonius made camp on the plains to the north of Scytheron, hoping that the Greeks would engage in conditions which gave him a real advantage with his cavalry. Perhaps cute to this, the Greeks camped on the lower slopes of Scytheron and along the mountain range. However, the account by Herodotus revealed that this didn't offer as much defence as the Greeks hoped. Early sorties by Persian cavalry caused real problems, and it might be a narrative trick, but perhaps this was the case. Most battles in antiquity started with a tentative sparring session between ranged troops or the lighter infantries before the real blood was shed. So it's more than probable that lower northern slopes of Scytheron were host to those initial excursions. Eventually the Greeks did move out towards the plain and the village of Plataea and the rest, as they say, is history. I just think it's worth taking a moment to imagine the view and what it must have been like for the Persians. They'd have seen an array of probably some 80,000 men or so in various kit strung out across the lower slopes of the mountain. It would have been an incredible sight. The military theme offers a neat link to my next mountain, which, like Scytheron, is also a range. And it also brings into focus one of those people who made up that Greek army, the Spartans. According to Plutarch, the Spartan king, Agesilaus, was once asked why Sparta had no walls. The king simply pointed to some of his men in armour and said, well, they're the walls. He probably said it a lot shorter than that, actually, given that he was Spartan. And the idea that Spartan didn't need walls is a fair point to make. What it lacked in man-made defensive structures, it certainly made up for in terms of geographical safety. Sparta sat in a very fertile valley with its own river, the Euratus. To the east rose the Parnon mountain range, which runs some 90 kilometres or 56 miles. To the north, there are the Arcadian mountains, and to the east, the Plagetus range, which is around the same length as the Parnon. Any army wishing to get to Sparta, and you'd really ask why you'd want to do that in the first place, would have to traverse narrow passes and make something of an uncomfortable trip. The Tejetus range separated Laconia, the region Sparta sat in, and Messini, the region which Sparta came to conquer. The highest point along this is roughly 2,404 metres, that's 7,887 feet. The mountain and the range were named after a nymph, Tajeti. Hesiod, a poet contemporary with Homer, described her as lovely, and she was one of the Pleiades, which is a constellation. Pindar referenced her connection to Artemis, and her son was the hero Lacedaemon, who ended up founding Sparta, who gave his name to the region. Pindar mentioned Artemis, and this goddess was incredibly important to the Spartans. There was the sanctuary of Artemis Orthia, which is thought to have dated back as far as the 8th century BCE. Worship here took the form of several different types of ritual, the most interesting being the cheese-stealing one, where young Spartan men tried to steal cheese from a platform. Elders armed with whips stood guard, and the idea was to prove your bravery by taking the cheese and suffering the beating. Yeah, I know, but I wonder what the Spartans would have made of social media. In Homer's Odyssey, the ridges of lofty Tejetus are the hunting grounds for Artemis, and it's near certain that this is an activity enjoyed by mortals. Indeed, it's more than plausible that Spartan women hunted here. 
I recorded a two-parter podcast on Spartan women, by the way, where I unwrap what life would have been like. I even go in on the whole cheese festival thing. Well, why wouldn't you? One final association between Spartan women and Tejetas can be found in Aristophanes' play Lysistrata. In it, the brusque character of Lampito tells everyone that she would happily expose her mystery from the top of Tejetas. And remember that this is Aristophanes, so that is absolutely and an innuendo. Spartans, you just can't take them anywhere. But it wasn't all cheery stuff. Pausanias wrote of horse sacrifices practiced there, and this is done at a sanctuary to Helios the sun god, and a peak above the ancient city of Brisae, which was southwest of Sparta. Horse sacrifice in antiquity wasn't unusual, though it is somewhat rare as far as Greeks go. More sinister, and what you might imagine I was going to talk about, was the infanticide practiced on Tejetus. Any infant born who wasn't deemed worthy by the Spartan elders was tossed into the chasm called the Apotheta. Infanticide was practiced in antiquity, so it wasn't unique to Sparta. If this did occur, what made it slightly different is that the parents weren't the ones deciding the fate of the child. It was the state, and I say if, because our only source for all of this is Pausanias. There's a letter from Pliny to Trajan, unsurprisingly, which mentioned child exposure as being something previous emperors had written to the region about. However, it's not wholly clear. It's possible that it did happen, and it wasn't mentioned, or that it happened on a small scale with infants rarely failing the test. The point is that for such an established fact or practice linked to Sparta, there's really not that much evidence for it. Tejetus is a good example of the mountain as a dominant cultural feature, as well as a geographical one. It's the reason why people and places in the area got their name. However, it doesn't function as much as somewhere where a lot of stuff happened. True, there were sites of worship, but these were on the lower slopes. But the next mountain was, in every inch, a place of worship and myth. I'm speaking of Mount Lyacon in Arcadia, in the centre of the southern Penapolis. It's a mountain formed of two peaks, the modern names being Mount Stephanos and Mount Elias, and there's also a valley between them and meadows lower down. Mount Elias stands 1,383 metres high, and it's here that an altar to Zeus has been partially excavated, as well as a couple of buildings. Lower down, in the meadows, there was another sanctuary, which included a possible bath complex, a number of buildings, and the only hippodrome in Greece which can be measured, and it comes in, at 250 metres by 50 metres. The altar isn't what you might imagine, no gleaming marble, but instead a collection of stones, many burnt, piled some 1.5 metres high. Excavations around it have revealed finds dating back to the Minoan period, so 1500 BC or so. Other finds suggest that cult activity started here as early as the 8th and 7th century BCE. Near to the altar, a temenos was located, and this is a sacred area which no one was allowed into, and Thucydides wrote how this was taken advantage of by a Spartan king called Pleistonax. This particular king had been banished in the middle of the 5th century BCE, and had built half his house in this area so he could seek refuge if anyone came looking for him. Pausanias added the detail that anyone who entered the temenos wouldn't live longer than a year, and that everything in the temenos cast no shadow. Further down the slopes, in an meadow, there's a lower sanctuary, and this has a collection of buildings and structures. There's an administrative building, a stoa, and what may even have been a bathing complex. 
I recorded a podcast on bathing in Greece and Rome, so it's probably not the lavish baths you might be thinking of, which are generally the Roman ones of the early empire, but this is impressive nonetheless. The baths, if they are indeed that, make sense as the Hippodrome points to athletic contests being hosted here. In fact, there are inscriptions from the 4th century BCE which record victors and competitors travelling as far as Sicily and Rose to attend. This suggests it was an important place to compete. By the time Pausanias was writing his travel notes, the glory days of the site had dwindled. But it was certainly influential. Pliny referred to the games here as being one of the first in Greece, and there's an argument that the Lupercalia held at Rome was in some way influenced by the games here. Virgil, for example, included a line in his Aeneid which linked the Lupercalia to this site. That Dionysus of Halicarnassus pushed this idea shouldn't be a big surprise. Much of his history of early Rome contains the theme of Rome being one big Greek cover band. But even Livy and Plutarch mention the link between the Lupercalia and this site. But why, you may ask, has the Lupercalia got anything to do with the Temple to Zeus and games held on the mountain? Well, the clue is in the name. It's called Mount Lycaon, and you might remember me mentioning how Autolycus had the Lycus partner's name, and this usually means wolf in ancient Greek. The next question you might have is, well, what's the association with bulls here? And my response is to take a long sip of tea, or possibly something stronger, and say... Well, now that you've asked. Lycaon, like other mountains, had a named association with someone, in this case a king called Lycaon, who lived in Arcadia. Zeus visited him, and Lycaon decided to test whether Zeus was all-knowing, and at this point, you just know it's not going to end well. The test involved him killing one of his sons, and serving him in a meal to Zeus. Unsurprisingly, Zeus wasn't fooled. True, perhaps Lycaon had served him a family recipe, but just with too much family in it. As a result, Lycaon was transformed into a wolf. Other myths have this as the precursor for Zeus sending a flood to wipe out mankind. The survivor of the flood was a chap called Deucalion, and his boat, or chest, ended up on Mount Parnassus when the flood subsided. Just a nice link between the two there. I should mention there's a slightly different account to all of this, given by Pausanias, and in this the king offered an infant a sacrifice at the altar to Zeus, and was immediately turned into a wolf. From Lycaon we get lycanthropology and werewolves, and the werewolf myth is often linked to Mount Lycaon. But perhaps not the werewolves of the modern era. No massive CGI monsters, shirtless teenagers, or the half-man, half-wolf thing. Not even a full moon. If you want to learn more about the werewolf in ancient Greece and Rome, I covered it in one of my Night of the Livy Dead episodes. The rite of transformation is commented on by both Plato, Pliny and Pausanias and seemed to involve a sacrifice made at the altar to Zeus which involved eating human flesh. Pliny and Pausanias both wrote accounts where after doing this a person is changed into a wolf for 9 or 10 years. They can then only change back if they avoid eating human flesh whilst in wolf form. Pausanias even went so far as to write a, an account of a boxer called Demarcus and he apparently had been a wolf and then changed back into human form, and then won the Olympic Games in the, at the boxing competition. Although, it should be said that Pausanias really doesn't believe this, but he still includes it. The werewolf myth might be explained better if we consider types of ritual activities, and in particular the sort which involve a rite of passage. Take the following example. There's an elite club for select families or youths deemed worthy in some way. 
they're required to take a symbolic sacrifice and then excluded from that group in order to prove themselves. Given the reference to banishment, it might have been that they needed to be under some sort of a test, say for example, survival one, or exist just outside of civilised society for a set time before returning and thus passing the test. It's by no means implausible and has with it the necessary components which could easily be misunderstood by later generations. When recounting such past instances, Pausanias is happy to oblige the reader with such tales as we found out with Demarcus. He may not believe in them, but will include them anyhow. However, in discussing the altar and the goings-on, he wrote what I find a really chilling line, and I quote, I was reluctant to pry into the details of the sacrifice. Let them be as they are, and were from the beginning. The comment suggests that there was something still going on at the altar of Zeus which dated back to the earliest times and wasn't something he was comfortable to write about. For some, this meant that human sacrifice was still happening. More recently, a skeleton of a teenage boy dating to the 11th century BC was found, but it's not conclusive in any sense. It isn't the smoking gun, though as you imagine, it has led people to make exactly that connection. In excavations around the altar, a trench was dug to look at what might have been sacrificed there. 94 to 98% of the bones were for sheep and goats, and these were mainly femur bones. 98% had been burned and therefore cooked, and some could be dated as far back as the 16th century BCE. Human sacrifice in ancient Greece isn't easily identified, and though there are enough hints to suggest that at some points and in some situations it may have taken place. If you wanted to hear more about that, you can listen to part two of my Human Sacrifice podcast, where I feature the Greeks and the Romans. What can be said is that sacrifices at the altar dated back at least a thousand or so years before Plato made his comments, and a good thousand and a half before Pausanias made his comment. It's more than feasible that something did happen, and the rumour of it was kept alive. With all that said, Pausanias does hint that it was still going on at his time. If it was, I can't imagine it being anything other than a real underground practice, a niche one which we have no supporting evidence for from anyone else, and you'd imagine someone would have written down something. There's one final reference to Mount Lycon, and this time it's about it being the place where Zeus was born. Both Pausanias and Callimachus, a 3rd century BCE writer, made this point. Having Zeus's birthplace located here, as opposed to Mount Ida on Crete, may reflect just how old the worship of Zeus was fixed to Mount Lycon. For Pliny, it was here that the first gymnastic games took place, and it was after this that the more famous games, such as those at Olympia, which were in also in the place of the worship of Zeus, came into being. You might think this doesn't add up in terms of dates. After all, the lower sanctuary with its buildings largely date to the 4th century BCE, and this is 300 years or so after the date of the first Olympics. Well, that's true, but it doesn't mean things weren't happening there earlier, just without all of the buildings. In fact, you could argue that there had to be sufficient reasons for these new fancy Dan 4th century BCE buildings to have been built. The victorists evidence people coming from all over Greece to compete again not something you'd likely see for a brand new set of games. The worship on Mount Lycon is set within the context of old and archaic. The sanctuary and games do well to show us just how successive changes to a site build upon the existing importance of it. 
Mount Lycon was old bones by the time of Pericles, Plato and Socrates. This itself fleshes out, no pun intended, how a mounted could function as a place of worship and accrue new facilities. It was an involving cultural spot, though perhaps one I wouldn't want to visit at night. And that brings me to the end of my discussion of these four mountains. The theme which I couldn't get away from was one I started with, that the Greeks imbued them with lore and myth. Mountains were cultural landscapes where a deity might reside, but also a place where this meshed with the physical aspects of worship, be it hippodrome, altar or temple. Overarching all of this was that there were local sites and legends, and the events which went on were tied to that specific place. So if you came from somewhere nearby, perhaps you felt the mountain as part of your cultural identity. Well, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I say it again, but if you're listening to this via any platform where you can leave a review, please do. It really helps get me more visibility. And if you want to say hi on Twitter, I'm Ancient Blogger, or at Ancient Blogger. And of course, there's my ancientblogger.com website. I'm also on Facebook, by the way, Ancient Blogger, and you guessed it on Instagram, Ancient Blogger. And I only ever put food pictures if it's kind of ancient food. It's just lots of uh, armour and the occasional Oscar, the Ancient History Hound. In any case, and more importantly, till the next time, keep safe and stay well.